0: If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to think of the moment when the light bulb went on and you heard the gospel and you understood it. Think of that moment when someone, maybe it was a parent, praise God if you were raised in a Christian home. Maybe it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you were in youth ministry and you were hanging out with some friends, and someone shared their story, and you realized, man, that's not true about me. Maybe you were in college, maybe you were a single adult, maybe a young married couple, or maybe later on in your 30s and 40s, and you hit a wall with something, and you realized, there's something wrong inside. And then somebody shared with you the simple message that God is holy, that you're not, that Jesus saves, and that Christ can be your life. And when you heard that message, something clicked. You need to know that somehow, through someone, the gospel penetrated your heart. And it was the Holy Spirit who landed that word of God on your readied soul. You believed. You were saved, and it is a miracle. God conquered your heart. I don't care what age you came to Christ. The Spirit of God was there. I was reminded of this a few weeks ago. We were doing a new elder orientation, and I asked one of our new elders about his conversion. He told me that it happened because of his wife's amazing transformation a particular line in a sermon he couldn't get out of his head, and a Bible study for seekers that was run by a family in our church. Here's what he said. In the midst of a broken marriage and our desperate need for help, a friend from IU invited us to a Bible study for seekers. Sidebar, that Bible study was not an official program of our church. just happened to be an elder and his wife who said, we'd like to have conversations with people who have questions about the Bible. They opened up their home and today somebody has come to Christ, many people have come to Christ because of that. Again, that's just an illustration of the multiplication. Back to his statement. My wife came home really late from the Bible study and the next morning she told me something happened to her last night. That she had accepted Jesus into her life. That moment helped me to realize that when God saves people, He actually does something in their heart. Second, I listened to the sermons on Colossians, and one particular line, Christ in you, the hope of glory, I could not get that refrain out of my head. It was continuous and not something I had ever experienced before, and it wasn't long after that when I trusted Christ as my savior. That was 10 years ago. That man not only moved from unbeliever to believer, but now he's in the process of going to seminary, feels a call to ministry, and has been affirmed as an elder in our church. That's multiplication. That's the way God designed things to happen. And that's the next ingredient that we're going to talk about this morning in Acts 2. It is the ingredient of witness. We're in the middle of an eight-week series on the book of Acts, Acts 1 to 11, trying to unpack how is it that the gospel was multiplied? We're trying to answer three questions. Number one, what were the ingredients that led to the massive expansion of the gospel in the early church? What are those ingredients that we need to see, savor and embrace two? What kind of mission is God calling our church to embrace in 2018? Right now, down in Greenwood, Pastor Don Bartimus is preaching at the Rock Bible Church. Our elders voted last Monday to affirm the adoption of that congregation and to replant them, and in a congregational meeting that's gonna take place, In connection with our worship-based prayer night, next Sunday evening, you as a congregation will have opportunity to vote to affirm, yes, let's do this again. By the way, that prayer meeting, we're going to move it from 6 o'clock to 5. We've heard from some parents that said, hey, if you move it earlier, it'll make it easier for us to get our kids there. So awesome, we're going to do that. And hundreds of parents with their children are going to be here next Sunday evening. So hundreds, I I can feel it. I can feel it. Can you feel it? Ooh, you better feel it. <laughs> and then third question is this. What is your spirit-empowered mission? What's God calling you to do? Like a couple in our church that starts to seek a seeker Bible study? What's God calling you to do? It may have nothing to do with this church in particular. What is God asking you to do? This morning, we're going to see that the witness of the church is the witness of individual believers. We're going to see that God works, and the way that God works is he works through words to reach the world. So far we've looked at multiplication from a standpoint of vision, from the standpoint of prayer, and we've set our sights on what it means for there to be this mission of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Last week, we looked at the matter of prayer and how we are commanded to seek the Lord and to seek him in spirit and in truth. A few years ago, I delivered a series of messages on evangelism and asked you to pray these three prayers. God, open a door, open my mouth, and open their heart. And this morning, we're simply going to revolve around this central thought, God works through words to reach the world. So point number one, and by the way, guys, in the sound booth, you're going to have to advance my slides. My clicker is broken. Number one, God at work. Verses one to four. In the second chapter of Acts, we see the way in which God is working. Find this account of what the disciples had been promised by Jesus, and they had been waiting for the coming Holy Spirit. This is an important text because it marks the birth of the church and the transfer of the earthly ministry from Jesus to his disciples. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So we start with Pentecost. This event, Pentecost, is connected to the series of festivals, often called the Feast of Weeks. It was one of three pilgrimages where devout Jews would make a trip to the temple in order to celebrate the completion of the harvest. The name Pentecost means 50th, and here's why. Because it is on the 50th day, or seven weeks after Passover. So this festival, Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, would have been popular because the weather was warmer. In fact, it would have been even more people would have been gathered in Jerusalem than would have been there for Passover. At the time of Pentecost, we see that the disciples are there gathered in one place. This likely was the upper room we had heard previously where they gathered for prayer. Now. In Acts 2 and verse 2, we see the dramatic entrance of the Holy Spirit. The scene is meant to to be memorable. It's meant to be something that has a bit of shock and awe connected to it. Look at verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. There's a number of things just to note here. First... This scene is designed to communicate that God is there. Luke attributes the source. He says, a sound, or there came from heaven a sound like a muddy, rushing wind. So this idea of something coming from heaven, this is to pick up on Luke's theme that comes from the Gospel account of what happened to Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, the text says in Luke three that the heavens opened And as he was praying, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. Now remember, the reason why Luke is doing this is because he wants to make a clear linkage between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of these disciples. So there's all sorts of parallels. What's more, we read about the sound of the mighty rushing wind. Think of this not like a gentle breeze in the spring. Think of it like a Category 5 hurricane. Imagine this room filled with mighty rushing wind, hair blowing all over the place, papers if they were on a table, flying, people grabbing on the tables, this sense of power and presence in the middle of the room. This idea of wind is often associated with God's presence. Think, for instance, of 1 Kings 19 with Elijah and his experience with God, or Ezekiel's vision of dry bones. In chapter 37 of Ezekiel, or think of Jesus' words to Nicodemus when he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is of everyone who is born of the Spirit. Not only is there wind, but there's fire. Throughout the Bible, fire represents God's presence and his activity. Think burning bush in Exodus 3. Think the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. But in this moment, what happens, if if the NIV translators are correct, it's that this fire comes into the room and then it separates and lands on each of them. So in the midst of this mighty rushing wind, just let your kind of imagination run with this. They're in this room, the room fills with this massive, powerful wind, as they're in that room, suddenly a flame comes in the middle of the room and then, boom, it separates over each of their heads. And the idea that's meant to be communicated is God is here, and he's not just here, but now the Spirit lands on every single person in the room. This is an important historical moment because previously the presence of the Spirit was not poured out on a group of people in such abundance. The Spirit's work was limited to singular people, and God's manifested presence was located in a place like the temple or the tabernacle. But this moment marks an important historical shift where now the Spirit of God dwells in all believers, making them individually the temple of God and collectively the temple of God, such that the Apostle Paul argues this. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 6.13 when he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Or, in regards to sexual ethics, Paul makes the same argument, saying, do you not know that your body, your body, your sexually oriented body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So, the idea is that the Spirit is now... Dwelling in individual people. The first part of verse 4 then brings us to the main point. It says, And when, and they, rather, were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, before we move on to what happens next, you need to know that Luke makes it very clear that God is now working in the lives of the disciples in the same way that he was working through Jesus. Take your copy of the Bible and go over to Luke chapter four. What I want to show you, so Luke's the same author, Luke authored Acts, Luke authored Luke, and his theology of the spirit and his theology of ministry are woven together such that Luke presents a very clear statement that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that he was full of the Spirit? And that Jesus' ministry was marked by the presence of the Spirit. So you're in Luke, in chapter 3, verse 21, it's the passage that I referenced before when it says that Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. He said, God the Father says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. This is the launching of Jesus's ministry. So we have the heavens open, the Spirit comes, God attests to the validity of his Son, and Jesus' ministry is launched. Then look at chapter four and verse one. The first thing that Luke says about Jesus is this, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And then look at chapter four and verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. So the idea is that very early on we see the Spirit comes upon Jesus. He is validated as the Son of God. The first thing we see is him being led by the Spirit, both then in the wilderness, and then notice the first thing that he does in verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now notice the first thing that Luke says that Jesus said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Notice, the first steps of Jesus' ministry were empowered by the Spirit and he proclaims something. This is important. We'll look at this proclamation role later, but you need to know that Jesus' ministry was empowered by the Spirit. And now in Acts chapter 2, we see the same model that from heaven comes the Spirit, and the Spirit now rests on all of these disciples. And it is the church now who has been empowered by the Spirit. It is the way that God works in the world. It is the way that God still works in the world. It is how we carry on the work of Jesus beyond the book of Acts. It happens by the power of God through the Holy Spirit's work. So now go back to the very first question I asked you as we started this message. Think back to the moment when you understood the gospel. Do you know what happened in that moment? No matter what age it was, when the light bulb went on, that was the Spirit of God at work in you. It was the wind blowing. It was this miracle where God helped you to see something that you would have never seen. That something inside of your heart said, this is true. 2,000 years ago somebody lived, his name is Jesus, he died on the cross, and God can take my sin and apply it to his account and give his righteousness to me and I can stand fully forgiven because of what happened. 2,000 years ago, it's true. And in believing, you became a follower of Jesus and God miraculously caused you to be born again. It was the Spirit's work. When you share the gospel with someone, you're being the conduit of that work. The joy and the passion of ministry the joy and passion of evangelism is getting a front row seat and seeing the light bulb come on. The thrill of knowing, oh my goodness, as I'm saying these words, the Holy Spirit is at work. As we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, is, is that God works in us in amazing ways. But here's the thing, there's some of you, it's been years since you've had a front row seat to seeing that happen. You may be able to think back in your days of college when you were really excited about the gospel and began sharing the gospel, but since then, if you're honest, that that, that passion has faded for some reason. It's been a long time since you've sat face-to-face with somebody and seen the glimmer in their eyes or seen them as they bowed their head and looked back up at you and said, I feel so different right now. Some of you have never seen that. And rather than guilt you into evangelism, I want to lay before you a vision of the beauty of what it means to be right on the front row as you see God work. And whether it's a child in your home or a friend that you've had a long-term relationship with or a spouse who needs to see the beauty of Jesus, I want to tell you there's a front row seat and the same God who works in Acts is the same God who's ready to work through you. Here's how Francis Chan describes it. The world is not moved by love or actions that are of human creation. The church is not empowered to live differently from any other gathering of people without the Holy Spirit. But when believers live in the power of the Spirit, the evidence in their lives is supernatural. The church cannot help be different and the world cannot help but Notice. Why? Because it is God who's at work. So God works through words to reach the world. Point number one, God works. Point number two, God works through words. Verses four to 36, we see the the bold declaration of the gospel. Church, words words, words of witness are the means by which the gospel spreads. Romans ten seventeen, Paul says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of God, or the word of Christ. So, gospel proclamation, listen to me carefully, gospel proclamation is the means by which multiplication happens. There's some of you that think, no, there's There's something else that that I'm just missing. You're not missing anything to be a part of the multiplication movement of God in the world. Nothing. The church lacks nothing, nothing in order to be a part of the multiplication movement. More than works of compassion, more than godly lives, more than social engagement, more than attracting a crowd, and yes, even more than miraculous signs and wonders, the gospel spreads as the people of God bear witness to the word of God. There's no other way. And it's the first thing that Jesus does. It's the first thing the disciples do. In Luke's understanding, the Spirit comes, they proclaim. The Spirit comes, there's power. They declare. In Acts 2 and verse 4, we see that these believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. The text Back in Acts tells us that they began to speak in other tongues. These are the actual languages of the Jews who had gathered in the city for that festival celebration. Verses 5 to 8 make it plain that they heard their own languages being spoken. They're astonished that these Galileans would be speaking all of these languages. And the purpose of this miraculous sign was to validate God's mission to reach the world through these disciples. In verses nine through 11, we have a long listing of the countries and regions. Interestingly, look at verse 12. We find that the response of the crowd was to mock them. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others said, they're filled with new wine. This is important to note. There's some of you who you think this thought... You're so nice, and I love you for it, but you're so nice that you think if there's any conflict or tension when you share the gospel, you must have done something wrong. The effect of that is that you only share the gospel when you are absolutely guaranteed that this person won't be offended, hurt, or they won't be misunderstood. And as a result, it diminishes your witness, it makes you less bold in the proclamation of the gospel, and the fact of the matter is for some of you, it's completely closed up your mouth or you've created little Christian ghettos because you don't want to have those awkward moments. And so you only have Christians that are around you. The second reason this is important is we should note here that this mocking opened a door. The accusation of drunkenness actually becomes the platform upon which Peter preaches a very fruitful sermon. His introduction was essentially to say, these men aren't drunk, it's too early in the day. Not sure why he said that, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Listen, it may be that your moment of mockery, when people think you're crazy or delusional, could be the opportunity of a lifetime to talk boldly about the gospel. At one level, they already think you're nuts, knowing what you believe that makes you nuts isn't going to make it worse so why not go there well so since you think I'm crazy let me tell you what I believe I believe that 2,000 years ago Jesus came and died and someday he's coming back on a horse right so you just tell him this is what the Bible says he's coming back and Proclaim the gospel, they already think you're crazy. Help them to know why you're crazy in love with Jesus. Some of you are so afraid of what people think of you. So afraid that they're gonna think you're intellectually inferior, you're, you're, you're one of those people. And on the basis of this, Peter launches into the, one of the greatest sermons ever. So don't mistake mocking for a lack of an opportunity. Then notice Peter's sermon. It's too long for us to cover it this morning, so let me just lump it together into three particular points that I think should be helpful in terms of how we ought to share the gospel. Notice first that this sermon was scriptural. There's, there's three major sections where Peter draws from the Old Testament. In verse 17, he pulls from Joel 2, and Psalm uh, verse. 25, rather, he pulls from Psalm 16. And in verse 34, he pulls from Psalm 110. What he does is he uses these texts as sort of base texts for his gospel pronouncement. In other words, he saturates his proclamation with the word of God. Can I just remind you that it is the word that pierces your heart? Can I just remind you it's the word that pierces your son or daughter's heart? Just remind you, it's the word that can penetrate the hard-hearted skeptic. Maybe you're even here today, and strangely, the words that I'm saying, they're making their way inside your heart. You may be here today, and you're like, I don't want you to do that. I'm not doing it. God is. Because the word of God is powerful, says the book of Hebrews, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrows. And here's the thing about the Bible. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Bible is a mirror and it shows us who we are. What's more, the Bible, not our arguments, are the things that are inspired. So therefore, our presentation of the gospel ought to be Loaded with scripture. Next, not only was it scriptural, but his sermon was also clear. Peter presented the basics of the gospel. Within a few verses, we find him talk about Jesus, sin, sovereignty, crucifixion, resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus, his lordship, and messiahship. His his message was tailored to the audience that was in front of him, but all of the essentials are there. Look at verse 22 The same chapter, look what else he says. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So somewhere in your mind, when you think about how to give the right witness, realize that people can't receive Jesus if they don't know who he is. And they can't know why they need to receive Jesus if they don't know what their problem is. So brother or sister, you have to be clear. You can't like do the soft dance around if Jesus is the only way. You just have to say what Jesus said. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You have to go there or that's not the gospel. You can't be like, well, your road, it's kind of a good one, and might lead to God, da-da-da. You, you do that, and you no longer declare the gospel. You give a false witness. And frankly, I'd rather have you give no witness than give that one. The third characteristic we see is that it was bold. Peter has no problem using language that pushes his people to understand what's at stake. And think of this, is it not true that in your life the greatest moments of personal growth came because somebody was bold with you? It was a teacher who believed in you or some coach that got in your grill or some parent that just was dead honest with you about you how you really are. They loved you, but they were straight up bold with you. And those moments, the big moments in life, they're often accompanied by bold words. So here's what Peter says, this Jesus, versus verse 23, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then verse 36, I think, is the most direct of all. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There it is. He's Lord, he's the Messiah, and you killed him. That's really clear and really bold. Listen, I want to encourage some of you, right where God has placed you, I want to encourage you this week to think of how you can be lovingly bold. I don't want you to be cantankerous. I don't want you to be annoying. We've got plenty of Christians who are like that. Don't, don't fill that group, or at least tell them you go to a different church or something. Um, <laughs> don't do that. What I mean is this. You get the point. What I mean is this. We need Christians who are going to be bold in their witness. And, and can, can you just realize the fact that There's people around you, they're bold every day. They're bold in telling you a joke that you didn't want to hear. They're bold in profaning profaning the name of Jesus. They're bold in using a word that you think is offensive and shouldn't be said. They're bold, they're bold, bold, bold. People are bold in their sin, so why not be bold in the gospel? Why not be bold? Some of you may need to ask God to give you a new level of boldness. God's placed you right where he has, in school or in a particular place of work put you next to that neighbor and your boldness could be the door that god wants to open for some of you it may be taking a bold step like joining a book club and reading a secular group a book with a group of unbelievers just to be able to know them and see how you can make an inroad with the gospel maybe it's a bold move of inviting your neighbor over or befriending your kid's coach or socializing with lost people I think I've told this story before, but when our boys got one of their first jobs, they were, came home one evening and they said, We got invited to go out after work with the fellow co workers. And I said, Really? That's awesome. He said, Really? I said, Yes. I felt bad they didn't know that. And they said, But I mean, they're going to go and probably do some things at the restaurant. And I was like, and a lost person invites you, you go. You don't do what they do, but you go. Because that builds a bridge of grace that can eventually bear the weight of truth. Look, sharing the gospel and hanging out with lost people is always risky. If you don't want to have any risk, then you won't know any lost people. And you won't share the gospel. The church won't fulfill its mission. Read the book of Acts, there's all kinds of risk. There's all kinds of challenges. Instead of like building some sort of gospel castle and building a moat around it and telling people to stay away, we need to go out into the world to be multipliers, the kind of people who say, I'm here because I care and because I think I've got the greatest news that you've ever heard. In order for multiplication to happen, we have to embrace the witness role of the church and what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. God sent his spirit to the church so that his church could be sent out to the world. So God works through words to reach the world. Third point, to reach the world. Verses 37 to 41 wrap up our text. We see this mission to multiply happens as God works through these words and he does so to reach the world. We see the amazing effect. In verse 37, I love this phrase. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Other translations translate this as they were distressed, convicted, they were pricked in their hearts. The idea is you feel something pressing on you. The ancient Greeks used this word for horses would stomp their, their hoofs on the earth. The idea is that you feel the weight, you feel the seriousness, you feel the heaviness, you feel the power of what you are hearing. It's as though something is pressed upon you and it's mysterious and strangely alluring. Some of you are even experiencing that today. You may not even want it to be here and yet the words that I'm saying, even though you may not like them, seem to be landing on your heart and there's something within you that almost says, dare you believe this? Dare you believe that you're a sinner? Dare you believe that Jesus died? Dare you believe that you could be forgiven of your sins? Dare you believe that everything in this book is true, and yet the more I talk, the, the stronger the heartbeat becomes? You know why that's happening? It's because God by his spirit is drawing you to himself. And the question is, why not relent and say, I believe? I believe. Why not believe today? As Peter preaches, as these people hear, they respond. They say, what shall we do? (laughs) Maybe you're asking, what do I do? Well, here's the answer. In verse 38 of Acts 2, here's what the Bible says. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In other words, the door is wide open. You want to come to Christ? Come to him today. That's the invitation. He calls them to repent. That word means to change the mind. It means instead of trusting in yourself, instead of trusting in your religious heritage, instead of trusting in the home that you were raised, instead of trusting in all the things that you have not done, instead of trusting in the fact that you're better than others, or you're not one of those people who fakes it till you make it, instead of trusting in all of those things, Peter says, trust in Jesus. You turn from trusting in yourself to trusting in him. And then he says, be baptized for the Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism means that you go public with your faith. It means that you say, I am a Christian. It means that you demonstrate. You you go public with the fact that you believe in Jesus. In other words, listen, there are no incognito Christians. That means, friend, that if you are a Christian and nobody knows, it probably means you're not. Because the idea is that you receive Christ and you witness. You give evidence that what you believe is real. Peter continues. Acts 2 tells us, according to verse 40, there were many other words that he said as he begged them to be saved from this crooked generation. That word crooked, that phrase means that the world is off track, it's under judgment, it's full of ungodliness, and you know, don't you, that nothing has changed? I mean, do I really need to convince you that we live in a crooked generation as well? Our internal problems, our external actions have not changed. We still need to be saved from ourselves and from the crookedness of the world that is around us and in us. And this text then closes with an amazing response. According to verse 41, 3,000 people were converted on that day. It is a remarkable moment of spirit-empowered witness. So listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, can I just remind you how unbelievable it is that God rescued you from yourself? Have you lost, have you lost the awe of that? And can I also remind you that there is nothing more unbelievable than seeing God at work through your words? You've experienced it personally. How long has it been since you've seen it happen in someone else? And why not pray? Why not ask God? God, would you open a door in the next 30 days? Would you open a door for me to share the gospel with someone just to see words, hear words come out of your mouth and to know this is God at work in the the world through my words and to maybe, maybe, maybe God will draw someone to Christ because of answering that prayer. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, why not come to him today? The undeniable sense of conviction that plagues your soul, that beating heart, the sense that this actually might be true, is God drawing you. He loves you that much that he brought you into this very room to hear this message today, and it lands on your heart, and you're ready to believe. Why not cross the line and say, I give up. I turn. I believe, I trust in Jesus. Because you see, when that happens, it's part of God's mission in the world. He works through words to reach the world, to reach you. That's his mission. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask you, Take your word as proclaimed and to let it land on softened and ready hearts. For moments where we are timid, give us boldness. For relationships that need to develop, develop, give us creativity for this longing to be a part of your work. Give us new energy to follow you. And for those today who are not yet the followers of Jesus, God, draw them, help them become followers today. Let them pray to receive Jesus right now. So would you come, Holy Spirit, give us a sense of mission, purpose, and also turn people from a crooked generation to become part of your family. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.